when it's good, it's like a magical experience. Like there's nothing quite like it for me. I really want to expand how average people perceive the arts in this country and specifically as that pertains to like the value people place in arts education. That's Kanal Tiwari. He's a student at Indiana University now, but he grew up in Birmingham, Alabama. He went to high school with Walker Burroughs and the Mutton Chops. His hair inspired the Mutton Chops name and logo. Kanal studied euphonium with Demandre Thurman in high school, and Demandre is now Kanal's major professor at IU. I'm Beth McGinnis, and this is Here in Alabama. I spoke with Kanal over Zoom in the spring of 2021. He told me how he had switched majors at IU. Then he immediately started talking about serving others through music. They have a specific program. It's called the Bachelor of Science with an Outside Field. And it's like where you do mainly music courses with like a small concentration in another thing. And about a year and a half into my degree, like I think it was mm, 2019 sometime, I took a few arts administration courses and I realized that I really enjoyed this. And I, and I think that in the future, it would be something that would be very beneficial for me to have training in, you know, seeing as like musicians generally work it within the nonprofit sort of sector and like the arts nonprofit sector of like our American economy. And I found out that I had enough credits, thankfully, from AP tests in high school that I could easily do this, do a degree in both euphonium and in arts administration within four years. And so, yeah, that's that's sort of how I ended up switching those things around. I mean, I still pretty much had the same course. I'm studying the same things with the same people. I've just kind of switched it around in a way that I will end up with two degrees after this four years than just one. They always say two is better than one. Well, actually, I don't know if anybody says that. <laughs> Maybe not. I grew up in a very, I would say, musical area. Birmingham was a very musical area, and especially like Vestavia Hills. There's a lot of like strong musical culture there, like a very well-funded band program, choirs, and, and the arts are in general like very well-funded. And that is true for a lot of different public school systems or private school systems with higher sort of socioeconomic status. But that isn't true for everybody in this country. And, and like, you know, just a few miles away from where, you know, where I grew up, there are a lot of people who don't have the same opportunities that I did. And so like my sort of overarching, like broad career goal is to sort of try and alleviate some of that disparity in education and get more people interested in the performing arts or arts in general and get more young people into playing music and hopefully brass playing but whatever it is it's really enriched my life in so many ways that I can't even like express right and for anybody to have that opportunity that would be awesome in whatever you know sort of arts thing that they would like. Kanal gave a recital last year it's the first of two required for his degree. There was this unaccompanied euphonium piece called Soliloquy Number no. 9. I think he's a British composer named Christopher Wiggins. It's very virtuosic, sort of flashy, not too flashy. You know, it was a good opener. And then I did an aria from Tchaikovsky's opera Eugene Onegin, 
Lenski's aria, it's pretty dense. It's like he's sort of confronting his mortality and he's like lamenting that he can't be with this woman who he loves. And it's very poignant, very like introspective. He's about to fight his best friend who he like drifted apart with and now they're fighting. And then I did the trombone concerto by Derek Bourgeois. He's another British composer. It's a very, very dense, it's probably the, I would say like the euphonium equivalent of like, like an oboist's like Mozart concerto. It's like the quintessential example of a concerto in, in like the forms are very like textbook. Like the first movement is textbook sonata allegro form. The second one is like some sort of binary form and then the like the last movement is like a 100 this is it's like a rondo and everything is like you know this like sort of neo romantic classical sort of spin on it that's that's really cool let me help with some of the musical terms canal used a concerto is a piece for solo instrument with orchestra or band often a concerto has three separate parts called movements you might have heard about the convention not to clap between movements, only at the end of the whole concerto. This applies to a symphony or a sonata, too. The movements each have standard forms. Canal said the bourgeois concerto follows these forms in textbook style. Sonata allegro form is typical for first movements. It's a fast opener with a dramatic arc. I tell my students there's a first act, a second act, and a third act in sonata form. Canal said the second movement is in binary form. You probably guess what that means, two parts. Rondo form is typical for the last movement of a concerto. The word rondo sounds like round because this form keeps coming back around to the same theme. And then I finished with a brass quintet piece by Leonard Bernstein called the uh, Dance Suite. It's just five different sort of sketches of different dances. He wrote it for a bunch of his choreographer friends in New York, the uh, dancers. I think it was the last thing he wrote, one of the last things he wrote before he died. Did you have to write program notes or give spoken program notes for this recital? No, I didn't have to do anything, but I, I tried to do as much research on these pieces as I could because I think just sort of knowing about, I don't know, playing any piece of music, if you know more about why it was written and who did this person write it for, you can kind of have a better understanding of what you have to play and like what you need to play. Like, you know, if you just take, I don't know, like a Bach violin sonata and you take off his name and you take off everything from it, you don't know what you're playing or anything really. Like, you know, just knowing that sort of context is really important, I think, to like playing music and whether it's required or not. Yeah, well, you definitely seem like you've done your homework. Not only did Canal do his homework, he just defended my entire field of musicology. One of the challenges euphonium players face is finding repertoire. The instrument wasn't invented until the 19th century. If you want to play music written before then, you have to play a transcription. That's basically an adaptation for your instrument. Demandre Thurman plays transcriptions, and so does Canal. If the original piece was vocal, the text is important, even though the euphonium doesn't play words. If I'm going to play 
an aria or something that's like not written for euphonium and it's not also like written for like another brass instrument like that's like sort of a different thing but if it's like a you know like a song or an aria or something a big thing i think about is like the melody and like the sort of i don't know density of the melody a lot of vocal music is very and especially like opera music from operas is very like it's it's like meant to like imitate speech but you're singing sort of and there's not too much like melodic sort of things like the entire melody will be like confined in like a small interval and so like my my big thing is like picking melodies and, and arias and whatnot tra- things to transcribe that have like a lot of density and that you can do a lot with this instrument that you can do so much with to sort of be able to showcase what the instrument can do with like the text so you played a trombone concerto you said on this recital but did you play it on euphonium or trombone I played it on euphonium. So playing something that was written for another brass instrument is maybe not that big of a switch, but when you're playing something that was written for a singer, maybe that's a little bit different. And you were you were thinking of density, I love that word, density of the melody line, but also thinking of the text. And I happen to know that you're also a jazz player, that you um, you do that sometimes or have a have background playing jazz. and it brought to mind some music by John Coltrane, who with a few pieces, I think probably the most famous one is A Love Supreme. He had a poem that was associated with some of the music that he was playing. And so there would be solos where he was really speaking the poetry through the saxophone. You know, I just wonder if that is similar. Do you ever think about that when playing jazz, for example, um, where so many of the jazz standards are pieces that have words? So um, is that inform your, your jazz performance practice as well? I would say so. I mean, I would say like when I'm playing anything on an instrument that was originally set to words, I think knowing what the words say and what that is trying to do like you're inherently at a disadvantage well i don't know disadvantage might not be like the right word but like playing a wind instrument like you can't do as much on a wind instrument that you can do with your voice like there's so many different inflections and whatnot and conveying meaning with speaking with language is very easy compared to trying to convey the same meaning with an instrument and to know what that text is trying to say and to know like what you know the poet the poem this jazz chart is set to or whatever only seeks to inform how you approach the piece and how you sort of your inflections and your sort of musical framework of you know playing a piece i asked kanal about his framework when he was growing up learning music it had to do with singing Before I ever studied an instrument, my mom would sing a lot. She's always sung a lot growing up, like just various Hindi songs, like Bollywood songs and Hindu like devotional songs. I always grew up like hearing her sing. And I have like a, a fair amount of memories of, you know, singing and whatnot, just not like formally, you know, training. Sometime between kindergarten and second grade, one of my dad's colleagues was moving houses or something like that and he had this piano that he didn't want to have anymore and so he told us that my he told my dad that like he could have the piano for free as long as he paid to move the piano to our house on the condition that my sister and I would take piano lessons and so indirectly that was sort of the impetus for all of this you know like years and years and years of study 
we also had a really strong music program in school, in like the public school, in like the elementary school. Wow, what a great introduction to music. Your mother singing. That's for so many people, I think maybe that's their first introduction to music. And what a beautiful way to relate to people of all different traditions all over the world that you hear your mother singing. And I mean, I guess that starts with lullabies. Did you watch Bollywood movies with her? I did. Yeah. So like there are a few like Indian grocery stores in Birmingham and, you know, like everywhere across the country. I think like a a somewhat common thing, at least at the ones that I've gone to and the ones that we went to like growing up and like still now is that the, the people who own the shop will sell like bootleg copies of movies and especially like the new ones when they come out like they'll be you know in like a small paper sleeve and you know it'll, it'll just be like a blank cd with like a you know handwritten label and so like my parents would like you know they would be like one or two dollars they'd be like real, well actually i don't know they'd be cheap and so like my parents would have would pick them up like every time we would go out and we would watch movies a fair amount. So I, I, I definitely grew up watching a lot of like Bollywood movies. That's that's definitely like a really fond memory of mine. That's so fun. And what a great, what great instruction in performance. Mm-hmm. I mean, there, nobody does performance like Bollywood. <laughs> and No, yeah. it's, it's, it's really something else. I sort of started watching more of those kind of films like recently. Like I, I, I didn't watch a lot like in high school or like in middle school. And as I've like gone through my music degree, you know, and studying like opera, it really is like there are a lot of parallels between like Bollywood movies and opera, especially like the more musical sort of Bollywood movies. And, and just like the way that the the whole narrative is constructed, the narratives, there's so much happening, all these different plot lines. And like, you know, I imagine like for an opera, like if it's like 1850, you know, like Rossini opera that you're going to see might be like the only thing you see like the entire year. So you got to get like all of this, you know, like love and death and, you know, uh, <laughs> humor and, and whatnot. You, you got to get it all in like in this like, you know, three, four hour, something like that. But yeah, I mean, they're, they're just very, 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 very dense. And like the music is just so good. The singing and, and, the, and the instruments and like the whole experience, it, it really is just like a whole experience, like watching one of those movies and just like the world that they create in those movies. You said your mom sang devotional songs growing up too. Yeah, so we kind of, my sister and I grew up practicing Hinduism. Like we, like my parents never like really like forced on us, like, but that's sort of how we grew up and we would grow up singing. Like a lot of the religious sort of practices that that we would do center around singing songs, different melodies and actually, this is something that I don't really know too much about, but there are a lot of like standardized melodies for these songs, kind of in the way that like hymns are, but I'm not sure where those melodies really come from. Like we know that like a lot of our hymn, like Christian hymns come from like different people, like Bach wrote like a lot of hymns or like, I think Martin Luther wrote some hymns, but I'm not sure like for like Hinduism for some of those songs, if like there is like a lot of scholarship on that. Well, and it might be that it is more, maybe more comparable to medieval chant, Gregorian chant, Mm -hmm. in the sense that it is maybe even still largely an oral tradition that Mm -hmm. is passed down without necessarily always knowing what the origins were. But, you know, it was that way with chant, with Gregorian chant in the Middle Ages, that it was seen to belong to the whole church, the whole medieval church. And it didn't really matter who originally sang that tune the first time, you know, but it was just passed down 
through oral tradition. I wonder, I mean, I'm not an expert on Hindu devotional music, so I wouldn't say, but I wonder if it is related to that in the sense Mm -hmm. of being an oral tradition. Yeah. And it could also just be the thing that is that like, nobody would really care to like, know. now we care to know. And now we care to like, have everything cataloged in like, you know, with just like copyright law, and you know, all that sort of thing. Like we're very sort of conscious of who created what and we really want to know all of that. And like, I think nowadays we have such a we look at things like very analytically and very like historically. I was just guessing about Hindu devotional songs belonging to an oral tradition. I did a little research, though. It was a pretty good guess. Many Hindu songs, called bhajans, are composed anonymously and shared over and over again from one singer to another. Medieval chant was the same way. Its composers were anonymous, and it was thought to belong to the entire worshipping church. As Kanal pointed out, This runs counter to the individualism that prevails in our society. But we can learn something from these Hindu songs. Music that belongs to a whole community also unites that community. One of the places Kanal found community growing up was in school band. They had like petting zoo instrument, petting zoo, I would say, something like that. Like (laughs) where, you know, everybody like goes around and they try the different instruments. And I... I mean, I wish I could tell you I like knew why I, I, you know, like specifically I gravitated towards low brass or euphonium, really. It's kind of just like a blur. I remember I was between trombone and euphonium. I mean, like I knew like percussion was out. Like that was just like not something, you know, like I could never do that. Like, you know, like I, I pick up the sticks and then <laughs> and then I just didn't like any of the other woodwinds. Like I thought it was too complicated, like the, all the different buttons and all the different keys and like having to use both of your hands, like, you know, at the same time. And I saw like the trumpet and like the euphonium and trombone and tuba and they were like three valves, four valves. That's cool. I can work mm-hmm. with that. <laughs> I think tuba was too low. I thought it was just like kind of like not my favorite thing. And then I just, yeah, so I started on euphonium. I do remember Miss Bain, the band director, tried to convince me to play trombone or or, or said that like I should maybe think about playing trombone because I would have to do it like later on for something. I don't know. This could just be something I made up at some point, (laughs) you know, just sticking with the memory. You may have needed a trombone player. Maybe. I started playing trombone in eighth grade then. And so I've just kept it up since then. At this point, I've been playing both instruments for just about the same amount of time. So, of course, you know my son, William, and when he did that instrument petting zoo, I think he really was struck by the beautiful sound of the euphonium, which, of course, is what euphonium means. And I think it really, just the beautiful sound of it spoke to him. Both Canal and William kept playing in band through high school. I played in... Like the concert band, that was like my, I guess, like the biggest thing that you do in high school band and marching band. Marching band was like definitely like a formative experience for me, I would say. Between you and me, I've never been much of a mover. Like I've never been much of like an athletic sort of person. And, you know, like marching band is a very involved sort of thing. You know, like you have to like move a lot and like the idea of like moving and playing. I'm also not very coordinated. That was like certainly a huge learning curve for me. But I really, really liked band and like just the opportunity to play with so many different people and like be a part of like something like Mr. Horton, the band director, would always 
say, you know, he had like his list of sort of like isms, like things that he would like that he would always say. I remember one of them was something along the lines of like, it's this is one thing where you're part of something that's larger than yourself. You're like a part of this giant organic sort of thing, like, you know, being in a band, marching band, jazz band, whatever, as producing this one sort of unified sound. And I always thought that was like the coolest thing ever. I mean, I still do. Like, that's like, I love playing like solo, like with myself, but playing with other people is like really, when it's good, it's like a magical experience. Like there's nothing quite like it for me. Making music with other people can be a magical experience. For Kanal, playing with the mutton chops was right up there with the most magical experiences. The mutton chops. Oh my gosh. You won Battle of the Bands on time, right? Yeah, it was like, that was like the most money I've ever had in like my hands at one point. It's like a thousand dollars. That was like, that day was like one of the best days of my entire life. The entire experience of that day was like awesome. Not just because of that. Like I, I remember in the morning I went strawberry picking up in like Chilton County. And then we went and got hot dogs downtown at Gus's Hot Dogs. It's on 4th Avenue. It's like the best hot dog you'll ever eat. It was incredible. And then we won the Battle of Hands. And I had a thousand dollars in my hand. Incredible day. But yeah, yeah, that was, that was, (laughs) that was really fun. So what did you all do with the thousand dollars? We had like made merchandise, like t-shirts, and we put it towards some, like some of it to that. We divvied up a little bit for each of us to have. And then we put the rest of the money, which was like probably like six or seven hundred dollars, to recording an EP in Ol Elegante Studios, Lester Newby in Homewood. At the end of the summer, before freshman year of college, we got in the studio and recorded four or five songs. Did you release it on any platforms? No, it, it, it has not been released. I don't know if we will ever release it. We have like all the all like the masters and whatnot, but we just never really got around to like releasing it. I don't know, it's kind of a shame. I think just sort of the chaos of like moving to college and like starting anew and like just everything that like freshman year of college has like a huge shift in like your just like world perspective and your worldview and your like I don't know life like it's a it's a huge thing and like all of us sort of split up and went across the country like you know we were all sort of in different places and it's we just sort of were like eh it's fine we we have this finished product like we we were happy enough to have the recordings to listen back to and like to have them forever for us and to share with family and whatnot, then that we feel felt like we needed to like release it for the world. Maybe that's changed. Keep an eye out for the mutton chops on Spotify. You can also hear some of those recordings in the last episode of Here in Alabama. If you heard that episode, you may remember that the mutton chops did some arranging and composing. None of us had like studied arranging or like you know, read any books on it or anything. We kind of just fiddled around with it and would just try different things. And and mainly we would choose songs that we liked. Towards the beginning of our thing, we would we did more like jazz standards, like off the top of my head, like St. Thomas, Lubasa, Watermelon Man. Later on, we like sort of transitioned more to like pop sort of stuff. Beautiful Girls by Sean Kingston. And that was when we sort of started to write our own arrangements with music notation software. That also was at the same time, I think that we started to write our own music. Like we sort of felt comfortable as an ensemble that we were all playing together. We knew sort of how each other play and like, 
what each player's strengths were. And so we would structure our arrangements sort of around that. We knew that Andrew had like a really good, he was really good at improvising and that was like a strength for him. And so he would improvise a lot over, you know, we would give him a lot of choruses on these songs. You know, same with Luke and, and Turner. That was like a big thing for them. So it was, it, it was kind of just like our transition to arranging and coming up with new songs was also with us sort of learning how to to play to each other's strengths within the ensemble and and to really like come up with a big sound. I mean, I, I promise you when we were doing this, we were not thinking about all of this. I'm just like sort of thinking about all this and how it sort of played out. It sort of goes with the territory to be such close friends and to be working together as musicians that you would be aware of one of their strengths and you would play to those strengths. It's just natural. I can completely believe that you wouldn't have had that in the front of your mind, even though that would be the most natural thing in the world for you to do. It also makes me think of another jazz musician, Duke Ellington, who would write in his scores the names of his band members. Instead of writing, this is a part for trumpet, he would write, Mm -hmm. this is for Cootie Williams or whatever. He would write the name of the player instead of the name of the instrument because he was thinking that personally and that specifically about the parts that he was writing. And it sounds like that's sort of what you were doing instinctively. Yeah, absolutely. And and I would say it's carry on even to now. I mean, I'm not playing with any of these guys anymore, but in college, like in music school, I've pursued a lot of different chamber music groups. And, and a big part of like how I like to pick music is to pick music that would suit the ensemble and like what everybody likes to play, what the players like strengths are, like what, what players do really well. I had a tuba euphonium quartet where both of the tubists were phenomenal, but one of them has like this wonderful low range, like in his low range, you know, he's, he's really into like folk music and a lot of like wedding band music and like brass band sort of stuff. And like that characteristic, like baseline, like sousaphone sort of playing as a strength for him. So we picked a piece, we picked pieces that like play to that strength and that like really get everybody to show off what they're best at while also sort of learning how to like, you know, just play better. The Mutton Chops played to the strengths of each individual in the band. As a student at Indiana University, Canal is still developing his unique musical voice. He's doing that by paying attention to other musicians. You mentioned Demandre Thurman. He's like my euphonium professor at IU. And I remember I studied with him in high school. And I remember like at some point he said something to me, something along the lines of to really improve as a musician, I have to have more life experience. I just won't play this sonata or whatever when I'm like 15, the same way that I would play it when I'm like 30, just because you have so much context and you have so much more music listened to. I would say like specifically for music, finding my musical voice, listening to a lot of recordings with a active ear and analytical ear and like just thinking about what I value in music and sort of just building that up and like my sort of musical tendencies and what I I would liken it to like learning a language maybe I don't know like there are certain recordings of musicians who aren't euphonium players or aren't trombone players that I think they do things extremely well and there's like you know like there's certain tendencies that they have and sort of being able to pick that out and pull that into like my own playing has been really influential. So I'm like the sum summation of like so many other musicians before me. Another big thing of just like developing as a person, consuming other media, like reading, 
has been pretty impactful for me, I think, in just figuring out who I am as a person, my perspective on the world, and just how I like see things and how I act day to day has been really influenced, I think, by, by a lot of the things that I've read. You know, just like thinking of myself as like sort of a sponge and like there's so much media and there's so many things and people who I've had the opportunity to like work with and and you know like movies to watch and books to read and music to listen to and sort of just trying to like pick apart those things and synthesize them into like who I want to be and like I'm at the age where I can kind of do that and I can also know what I'm doing I can I can also like think about these things more analytically and whatnot I mean I'm sure like five ten years from now I'm I'm going to be saying something completely different maybe but, you know, it's, it's just what happens, like, as you grow older. Like, I couldn't be saying this, like, right now when I was, like, 15. I, you know, I was just, like, wiping the snot off my nose, <laughs> you know, playing, playing the trombone in jazz band. <laughs> I don't know, Kanal. I, I knew you when you were 15, and I think you were doing a little bit more than that. I wanted to know more about what Kanal values in music. Concurrently with my study of euphonium and trombone, I've been taking voice lessons for uh, the past year. That That's sort of like a new thing for me. And that's sort of given me a new perspective on like how phrasing works. And like, that's like a, if we're using music as, a, you know, like the language, like if we're continuing that metaphor, phrases are sort of the sentences of this like language thing and sort of really being into, attuned to how one paces like what you're trying to say musically. I think like having a clear idea, like just like the, the idea of having a clear idea of what you want to say musically is very, very important. That comes with what we were talking about earlier, which is like the historical background to the to the music. It goes also with not just like the textbook, this person lived from this year to this year, and they, they wrote this piece while they were living in this place, and they wrote this piece while their, their wife was in you know hospice care. I, I don't know, I'm, I'm just kind of spitballing. But it also goes into like getting into other people's musical styles, right? Like for a person who plays mostly Western classical, Western art music, you know, knowing really like the ins and outs of like Mozart's style, you know, whether or not I play a lot of Mozart, knowing that as gives me context to how I approach a piece that might might be similar to Mozart. And it gives you a frame of reference. And so I would say like a big thing I value in music is sort of context, right? It is sort of just knowing with whatever I'm playing, right? Like nothing exists in a vacuum. A lot of music, specifically Western art music, is written with the context of the music that precedes it because the people who wrote that music grew up playing other people's music. Like Mahler studied with Bruckner. It's it's sort of like this just descending pedigree. Composers grew up playing other people's works. They know other people's works and they're familiar with them. And so for me, like just knowing that context and having a better grasp of what any music is trying to do is really important. In terms of my music, something I really value is my sound. For any instrument, you know, like your voice or the trombone or euphonium or, or whatever, really, that's really like one of the only unique parts about your playing. I'm sure if, if you play back like Demandre's podcast it's gonna like be very similar because like so many of these ideas are things that he's like sort of instilled in me and like in 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 the years of us studying together but like you know like just your unique sound is like really something i value and having something that's interesting and beautiful and that i can describe it in so many different ways is really important i would say actually 
you know, like all this like rambling uh, distilled in one point. I think having a sound musically that you can describe in many ways that aren't just something generic, like beautiful is, is really important to me. And it's really one of my goals as a musician to have a sound that can be so many different things that can be like jolly or playful or introspective. Like obviously the type of music I play showcases that, but like at the core, just like having a sound that that is very well thought out and very well curated based on all this context and all this music I've listened to is really important to me. Kanal kept returning to the theme of community. You really can't get far without working with other people. And and being able to work with other people, even if you don't necessarily like them a lot. So, like, it shows up more in, like, who I play with and the types of things that I do. Like, the mutton chops wouldn't have been any degree of successful if we didn't have that rapport with each other. And if we didn't like each other as people first before musicians. Of course, when you go to like a professional orchestra or band or something, it's a, that's a little less important because it, you're kind of treating the music as more of a commodity, like that you're like, you know, like you're a unit that's going to fit in this orchestra and there are numbers behind you, like, right, like, you know, you're going to get this salary and, you know, that is more serious. Also, just like a, a sort of global thing for me is just like, which definitely goes in hand, hand in hand with music. It's to sort of try and learn as much, take my ego out of learning. I mean, it's definitely something that has grown easier with age, I would say. But like being open to new ideas, I would say like outside of music, this pops up a lot in like literature and like reading. It's like being presented with ideas and narratives of people who are completely different than you is something I think that really pops up with music because there's a lot of music out there that doesn't isn't written for me and isn't written for people who have my same sort of value system. I listen to a lot of Western art music, but that music wasn't written for me as an Indian American, you know, man, right? Like that it just wasn't written for me. But like sort of being able to like take that music and, and seek to understand it or take that, you know, kind of literature approach, poetry, whatnot or in interactions with other people, trying like learning from other people. That's really like something that I value. And, and I think it goes back to what I was saying earlier in developing sort of my sound concept and like what I want to produce musically. It's really just like the culmination of all these different disparate experiences that I've had so far in life. I wanted to know what Canal had been reading lately. I've been reading these stories by Jorge Luis Borges. He's a Argentinian writer from the most of like the 20th century. These short stories are all like very condensed and they're like vignettes into different people's experiences. I really enjoy them. I mean, they're they're all very, very, very dense and complex and they really like present a lot of different things like ideas and philosophies and whatnot. A big thing is about like these in particular is that they get me going down different rabbit holes of other things to like research. Like there's there's a lot of, well, maybe not in this in this book, but in, in like a lot of the other books that I've read, there are like a lot of stories about monks and in South America and like the missions, very, very, like Jesuits, like very, very old sort of things and the church and the presence of the church. And I think it's like really, really fascinating 
but like before the you know like i started reading borges and another i believe he's chilean roberto bolaño over the summer and before i had read that i had i didn't have that perspective at all like i had never like thought about like you know what a jesuit monk in argentina you know what their life would be like and what their perspective would be like and how that happens like or, or you know like what sort of experiences did these people have obviously a lot of this stuff is fiction most of it's fiction i really only gravitate towards fiction i maybe i should read more non-fiction but i really like just these i i really like stories and i really like narratives isn't it? i like fiction too can all and so i don't blame you at all and maybe you'll have a chance to explore some of the music that is part of those cultures as well like argentinian tango or something like that actually it's funny you mentioned that i'm playing a piece right now that's well, it's by a composer who's a student at IU. He's like a, he's a euphonium student, but he is a, also a successful composer for low brass. And he wrote this piece that's inspired by tango, Argentinian tango music, that is like unaccompanied euphonium piece. It's, it, it's pretty cool. So yeah, I, I actually have been interacting with these, you know, these things that I've been reading. And a big thing also is playing and arranging chant, like, I would say more like Renaissance chant and choral music for euphonium and trombone and, and trying to play those with other people. A lot of that like medieval Renaissance vocal music turns out to lay really well on brass. And I've, I've played a lot of that kind of stuff. Remember, euphonium players often play music that predates their instrument. And so it, it, it is pretty cool, like in retrospect, to see how like the stuff that I've like read interacts with the stuff I've played musically and I've sort of gotten to these places completely independent of each other, right? Like, you know, like with some of these medieval and Renaissance things, I'll just be playing in like brass choir. And that's just the piece that one of the conductors chose or one of these, you know, people in these stories will mention choir or something like that. So it's, I mean, now that you've sort of drawn me to like thinking about this, it's just like a really cool intersection. Oh, I think so. Definitely. So, so it's the conductor of the brass choir who's picking out the medieval and Renaissance music. Actually, Demandre conducts the uh, brass choir here. And so we've done a little bit of that, but his assistant conductor is one of the masters conducting, when conducting students. His name is Daniel Johnson. And so he's, he's picked, I think, more of these earlier choral pieces. Mm-hmm. Well, the, I mean, some of these low brass instruments sound so vocal. I can really see how that would work, how that repertoire would work well. Well, I told you I had two final questions, and so this is my last one, and it's a throwback. So, the name of the mutton chops. Tell me how that came about. That's a good question. So, in high school, well, you know, when the group was coming up, I had really long hair like past my shoulders it was like it was like something you know and and i also had a mustache and a beard at times but i had like big mutton chops i don't know exactly how we decided on it i know i said earlier that we like a lot of like our influences like a group came from the group the lucky chops i honestly don't think that that was like like we didn't think about that at all i think we just thought it would be funny mutton chops you know because i have mutton chops i was kind of i like to think that i was like more of like the face of the group at times uh especially in performances like you know speaking for for whatnot like singing some of the some of the stuff so yeah i guess we all kind of just agreed that 
mutton chops was the thing. And then like our logo, like that was on our t-shirts that we had made was like my sideburns and my mustache. That was like you know, inspired by me. Uh, so yeah, no, it was pretty cool. I have to say that the other band members back you up on that story. They all agree that about the name, but also that I think they also see you as the face of the mutton chops. So mm-hmm. think they would have supported you on that. Yeah. You know, like I, I, I'm just thinking like, you know, like going to what the other people in the band have said, like, you know, if some, some of the stuff I, I might, I might just not be remembering, right. And, you know, we could fact check it all, you know. <laughs> and, uh, oh, no, I, I think your stories corroborate one another pretty well. So mm-hmm. nobody's in any danger here. Of <laughs> yeah. You know, and then, and then I might get canceled for some. No, I'm no, I don't think you're going to get canceled. You're not going to get canceled. What Kanal has been talking about is actually the opposite of cancel culture. Kanal, Walker, The Mutton Chops, and Demandre Thurman all have unique individual voices, but they didn't develop those voices in isolation. They've honed their voices in vibrant communities, shaped them through strong friendships. They've absorbed what their mothers sang and what their band directors taught. They've learned the language of music by listening. episodes, I'll introduce you to someone else who has been listening well. Chloe Smith is a PhD student in musicology at Yale University. Last year, she wrote a master's thesis on how Birmingham-based musicians participated through their music in the discourses of the civil rights struggle. Chloe sat down with me this past spring and told me about her research. Chloe helped me understand both music and civil rights in a new way. I look forward to sharing our conversation with you. The music you heard in this episode was from Kanal Tawari's junior recital at Indiana University. If you would like to hear more of it, search YouTube for Kanal Tawari's junior euphonium recital. That's K-U-N-A-L-T-I-W-A-R-I. I'm Beth McGinnis, and this is Here in Alabama. Thank you.